It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. George Bernard Shaw once said, A life spent making mistakes is not only more honorable, but more useful than a life spent doing nothing. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, what's our topic for today's episode? Well, we are continuing our Warriors of God series, and our question is, how can I fight for God's purposes like King David? And our theme text is found in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And we also have Julie with us. Hello, Julie. Hello, Rick and Jonathan. I am happy to be here with you again. And one of my big questions is, after we mess up, do you ever feel like just giving up? And so we're going to get right into how God can work with us in spite of ourselves. Well, that's pretty good, <laughs> in spite of ourselves. Also, other questions coming up in today's podcast. Have you ever been careless when you should have been reverent? What if you were really trying to do the right thing but just didn't pay enough attention? What if somebody else suffered for your wrongdoing? In segments three and four, we're going to look at how King David fell into such a, an exact turmoil as this and how he really leaped right out of it. And finally... What if you had your heart set on a way to honor God, and for, the very, for a very good reason, you were forbidden to do it? Would you just walk away and sulk? Well, our final segment is going to deliver a powerful solution to this problem. So let's open this thing up. David was a hero and was anointed to become king of Israel. Long before he assumed the throne, he defeated Goliath in battle, contributed to the sovereignty and protection of Israel, and faithfully served under King Saul. All this happened before he was 25 years old. Though he became a fugitive when King Saul turned on him, he never betrayed the king or God. Many years later, he finally became king, became king himself. He was a mighty and God-focused leader. This almost sounds like a happily ever after story, but it's not. David committed some horrible sins along the way that created havoc and cost lives. His sins are some of the most well-known in all of Scripture. With so many bad choices, how did David maintain a godly perspective? How did he continue to fight for God's purposes? Rick, what can we learn from the roller coaster of David's life to enhance our attempts to be warriors for God? Those are good questions. So to get started, Julie, let's just do a brief recap of where we were in the last episode, and then we'll get going right into this. Well, the world's pretty stressful right now, and so we wanted to take a pause and do a series of podcasts diving into the lessons about the life of David in the Old Testament. And we were surprised when we studied this out how many relevant examples there are to us today. And our last podcast, episode 1128, covered the life of young David when he famously fought Goliath. And we talked about facing our own Goliaths, you know, circumstances that seem impossible, but we know the battle is the Lord's and he has ultimate victory. 
But we also talked about a special covenant friendship that David had with Jonathan. It was his unlikely best friend because Jonathan's father was King Saul, who at various times was (laughs) trying to kill David. And our lesson was choosing the right friends can save your life in more than one way. And with godly friends, we're not in this alone. So check out that episode if you haven't already. And don't forget, many stories about David are great for children to learn about. We've created two very special CQ Kids videos, Who Was David, Parts 1 and 2. You can find these at christianquestions.com slash YouTube. There you'll find an entire library of CQ Kids videos for kids, parents, homeschoolers, or Bible class teachers. So we're now at the point where David has overcome many obstacles and adversities to become king. He's now a man of great wealth, honor, and respect. But along with great success, undoubtedly comes great temptation, something we all deal with. And so we begin this part of David's life by looking at some of the difficulties that he faces, and they are major. So each, each segment, we want to have just a basic theme to, to look at and see how it affects David and then how it affects our life. So the theme for this segment is, is simple. Sins of desire dishonor God and the blessings that he gives. Sins of desire dishonor God and the blessings that he gives. So Jonathan, let's set the table for the story here. Well, the story of David and Bathsheba is an infamous cautionary tale, revealing major sins of David and his painful fight back to redemption. Satan is predictable in that he repeats himself as mankind keeps failing uh, and falling for the same old traps. He presents to us opportunities that appeal to our nature, our basis desires. We all know better, but can have a hard time actually doing better. So today we want to give our listeners a reading assignment. I've got a few reading assignments throughout this podcast, and we highly recommend read the entire chapter of 2 Samuel 11, even if you're already familiar with the David and Bathsheba story. So 2 Samuel 11. So for our first David story today, we want to think about how this advice fits into our lives now. And here's the advice. At springtime, go to war. And we find that lesson shows up in 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David said Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So let's take a look at the context here. David is getting a little weary and a little older, and he did not go to war this this one particular spring. David's army was highly trained, and they were well-equipped. So he sent his nephew Joab to take his place in battle. Now, kings and warriors on both sides generally stayed home in the winter. Springtime made for better roads, and it was easier for troop movements. So... Okay, we're just laying a little bit of groundwork. We're just talking about the fact that spring is the time you go to war, but David stays in Jerusalem. Jonathan, as we go through this, we have a look at purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance. Each, each time we want to draw a lesson, it comes from what is our purpose? What kind of pitfalls do we have that, that are in front of us, and how do we persevere? Purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance. Jonathan, what is our first one? Sin can be subtle and often masquerades as reasonable rest. Keeping your purpose before your mind will distinguish between your rest being reasonable or your rest being reckless. Reasonable rest or reckless rest. Think about that 
in terms of our lives as we look at the life of David. See, this is when David was idly strolling. What happens next is he's idly strolling on his rooftop, and he spots Bathsheba. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's go to verses 2 through 5. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Okay, okay, okay. Stop. Okay, think about this for a second. I mean, really, after he takes his midday rest. Now think about what's happening. His army is out on the battlefield, and David is taking his daily nap. <laughs> oh, king, it's, think, he's supposed to be the leader. He's always been the leader. He's always been out front, and he's taking a nap. Think about the message that sends. And, of course, he sees this beautiful woman because he's not where he's supposed to be. You gotta understand the depth of the of of the little things that add up to the big things. Okay, Jonathan, let's finish the scripture. But wait, that's good. But what does that mean for us Christians? Are we taking naps? We better not be. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, really, it comes down to: Am I where I'm supposed to be, or am I taking that reckless rest rather than resting in God? I mean, really, that's the way we have to look at our lives. So. We have to be careful about this. Okay, Jonathan, let's go back to the text. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Aliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Oh, this is a nightmare. So David, like you said, was not where he's supposed to be. As king, he's supposed to be leading his troops in battle. And none of this would have happened. Focusing on his desires, committing adultery, trying to cover up his adultery by deceiving Uriah, which we're going to find out about, murdering Uriah. Then there's the death of that baby that was born, this blot on his reputation, the agony before the Lord and begging forgiveness. Like all of this wouldn't have happened if he was just where he was supposed to be. Reckless rest versus resting in God. This man after God's own heart lost his way dramatically. And you know what? It starts with taking a nap. You've got to realize the depth of what we need to be standing for. See, the true followers of Christ are referred to also as kings and priests. So that means you have high-level responsibility. We too must lead in battle. Let's look at Revelation 1.6. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The idea of kings and priests is not just a nice cushy title. It means work and responsibility. We've been warned. 1 Peter 5.8 is a great text that helps us understand the warning that we have to put in place for ourselves. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Vigilance in the service of God is a requisite that never goes away. It doesn't matter how long you've been in, what you've done, Vigilance is always required. And so we've got this warning. Well, let's look at it the other way. Who can't Satan devour? Who is able to stand apart from that, that devouring lion? Well, it's the one who keeps himself sharp before the Lord and is attentive to his voice through the word of God and who's not taking a nap when he's supposed to be working, when he's supposed to be in battle. First John 5.18. And this is from the American Standard Version. 
We know that whosoever is begotten of God sinneth not, but he that was begotten of God keepeth himself, and the evil one toucheth him not. So the idea is you can avoid the devouring jaws of Satan by being vigilant, by realizing that as kings and priests, you have responsibility, and we need to take it seriously. Purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance. What do we have, Jonathan? Once we begin with a sin of ill-advised comfort, it is only a small step to sins of ever greater proportions. Sin of desire often begin with rationalization, carelessness, while tending to our priorities. Rationalized carelessness while tending to our priorities. You see, we can be tending to our priorities, but, you know, kind of in a sleepy way. Be aware. Learn from the experiences of David and the great sins that came from small little things, being in the wrong place, not doing the things he was supposed to do in the service of God. You know what? This is downright scary. Even our small decisions can begin to build us up or can begin to break us down. Think. This needs more discussion. What steps should we be taking to steer clear of subtle temptations? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as What Do We Do When the Bible Seems to Contradict Itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. Think of temptations like bait on a hook or a mousetrap. The mouse sees the cheese and thinks, hey, that looks pretty good. Smells kind of good, too. One step too far, and it's over. Temptations rarely look as dangerous as they are. From the roof of his palace, David saw a beautiful woman bathing. What he didn't see was a dangerous situation that could damage the rest of his life. And what he didn't want to see was sin was right in front of his face. He didn't want to see it. No one was around. They were all out on the battlefield. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, All that that. was left was women, right? (laughs) I mean, it was a a given he was going to run into trouble. Well, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing that we have to understand when you look at the life of David. And these are things that everybody knows about. So what do we actually learn from it? Okay, that's what we want to get to. So our theme for this segment, Jonathan, is what? Sins unrepented of create a slippery slope away from God's blessings. Got to always think about sins as as a sheet of ice. You can't get your footing. And if that sheet of ice is now on an angle, guess where you're going? You're going down, and you have to be careful with this. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we arm ourselves against this slippery slope that can crash and burn our entire lives? Well, we've got several points here that we want to look at. Julie, get us started with that. Well, I really liked what you said before about how Satan, you know, really reuses the same traps over and over again. And if you, you know, boil it down, you can see that we're we're falling into the same temptations. And many people fall into situations of adultery and, and sins of desire, just like was here. So I think we need to take an honest assessment of what and where our personal traps are, like what's in our deepest, deepest heart. Be honest with ourselves and then get out of there. All right, so you be honest with yourself, and then you remember your priorities. See, you have to look at, understand yourself, and then remind yourself, what is my most important thing? What's next, Jonathan? 
Well, this takes courage, Rick. We need to pray to God to reveal to us or protect us from the traps that we never guessed were a problem. So you're saying you're essentially asking for trouble. You are. You're being vulnerable is what you're being. You're asking for trouble to be revealed so that you can be prepared. Why? Because you need to remember your priorities. And if you ask God, reveal to me my weaknesses so that I can understand them, keep them at arm's length because my priorities come first. So again, arming ourselves against the slippery slope. Julie, what's next? Uh, I think you got to stay away from the people and the situations that are tempting. And this is, you know, you, you're um, like alcoholics, for example, they're told you don't go to a bar, you don't go to a liquor store, you don't hang out with the friends that you used to hang out with, because they will tempt you. So you really need to set up your life and your situations so that you're not tempted. And it's one thing to set up your life and stay away from something, but you have to move towards something else in its place. And so we say, remember your priorities, go toward those, those folks that will help you with keeping what's most important. So godly John- friends. We talked about that last week. Yeah, Make sure was, you've got godly friends. It was a huge, huge lesson. Jonathan, what's next? You know, this one sounds easy. Be where you're supposed to be and do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but <laughs> we are we? Well, that's it. That's all we need to do. Duh. Yeah. And why is it that we so often don't because things come into our minds? Those, those previous points that you guys made aren't put in place. How do we do that? How are we? Do we stay where we're supposed to stay? Remember your, your priorities. Do what you're supposed to do. How are you supposed to know that? Remember your priorities. If you have your priorities in your head, you're going to remember what's most important. What's next, Julie? Well, I, I'm going to take one of the lessons from last week when facing Goliaths. Know the battle is the Lord's because some of these things you can't do by yourself because it's very, very difficult. And so you do need to lean on the Lord and the Lord's people to help you through. And again, how did David beat the giants? He remembered his priorities. He was fighting for God. He was fighting for Israel. The battle was God's. He was simply the instrument. He understood his priorities and lived and conquered through those priorities. Jonathan, final point. And Julie uh, touched on this a little bit, but this is so crucial. Choose the right friends because it can save your life in more than one way. With godly friends, we are not in this alone. And such an important point. And again, where do you find your godly friends when you remember your priorities? I am a broken record on this. Your priorities put you in the right kind of place. You know, and it, it really comes down to just understanding what's your, the why of your entire life. Well, Rick and Julie, there is nothing more powerful in the midst of sin than a moment of pause to refrain ourselves. The sins of passion are fast and furious. Why? passion crumbles because it has no substance. Oh, that's well said. Yeah, it does. It, you know, when, when, you, when you think about it, um, if, if we are looking at things through the, the right eyes, the, the passions, they have nothing to stand on. But too often, we, we, we look at things through how we feel rather than through what we know. And then, so we decide, do, do our passions crumble or do they stand up for something? And then we get in trouble. And Rick, we need to ask ourselves a question. Well, what's our why? Now, Rick, yours is short and to the point. Remind us, what is your why in your life? Two words. Two words that drive me everywhere and everything. Honor God. If my life is not honoring God in whatever particular moment, I have to reassess 
what my priorities are. Julie, what's your why? You know, I would have to say my why is one word. It's gratitude. I want to be so thankful for all God has given me that I try to stop and think, is this action or response or activity showing God how grateful I am for all I've been given? And I think of Psalms 116, 12 that says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So if I do something I'm not supposed to be doing, is that showing gratitude to God? And, you know, we've got a team of volunteers who create inspirational graphics for Christian Questions social media accounts. You can find us at CQ Bible Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. And we create many of what we call um, Thankful Thursday graphics. And I'm on that team. And I sit for a few hours each week just recalling what I've been thankful for. And then we draw it and we share it. And yes, it's ranged anywhere from I'm thankful God has the universe under his control to I'm thankful for emergency brownies and (laughs) true and (laughs) and dolphins and an evening walk and flowers from a friend. You get the idea. So my word is gratitude. Am I being thankful in my actions? Nice. And my why is be an instrument to bring praise, honor, and glory to our heavenly father and help others to do the same. That's my why. Wow, that's really important to have a why. Yeah, yeah, because it's something to go back to in whatever circumstance, and it needs to be easy for you to remember. It needs to be needs to be customized to your mind and your heart so that it touches you, and it really, really does help. So um, for those that are dealing with temptation issues and who isn't, uh, we do want to recommend episode 986, How Do I Deal with Enticing Temptations? It was a podcast just on this subject. You can go to ChristianQuestions.com, just type in 986 and find How Do I Deal with Enticing Temptations? And, you know, in Psalms 139.24, King David realized it's often difficult to examine ourselves realistically. So he prays to God to help him see himself as he really was. And that's what Jonathan brought out about, you know, being able to have God reveal to you. Well, David did this. He said this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May we pray in a similar way for God to help us examine ourselves properly and we can see ourselves as he sees us. And then we can purge out what's unbecoming or what needs improvement. And I Really like your idea, Rick, of a mousetrap, because sometimes temptations are really hard to detect until we're trapped. And boy, that cheese smells good. (laughs) Hey, uh, bottom line, one sin can quickly lead to another. Now, the remedy is one priority can quickly lead to another also. We can either degrade or upgrade. Mm, Yeah, and, and, you know, we need to pause so that we can get the priorities straight. It's not something that just comes naturally and easily. So let's get back to David. Now that we've gone through all of these things to help us with the slippery slope. David saw a beautiful woman bathing, but he should have seen a dangerous situation that could damage the rest of his life. His blind sensuality would lead to a desperate and guilty cover-up. There's never a cover-up that's not desperate or guilty a desperate and guilty cover-up. David himself gives Uriah a letter to Joab, instructing Joab to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle was fiercest. Then Joab was instructed to pull back all of the other men so Uriah would be left alone on the front lines and die. Way to go. Desperate and guilty 
cover-up. Uriah dies. The news came back to David, who gives a callous and flippant acknowledgement of, of, of what happens. L- listen to his response. 2 Samuel eleven twenty-two to 25. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. You know, before we get to David's response, think about the messenger for a moment. Think about the fear and trepidation he would have had coming before the king to tell him one of his mightiest warriors, Uriah, had died in battle in a terrible, terrible incident. And I can imagine he's shaking in his shoes saying, don't shoot the messenger, literally. Don't don't take it out on me. And then he describes, well, you know what? We, we were shooting at them and we were doing all of these things, but, but he, he was taken in battle and he dies. He's worried to death to tell the king of this loss. Listen to David's response to the loss of Uriah. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Callous. You know why? Because he took a nap. When he should have been fighting, he was sleeping. And this is now the cover-up is, okay, don't let it discourage you. You know, this is not the heart of the David that we know. The man after God's own heart had devolved into a man after his own heart, which was filled with lust, guilt, and denial. And you know, here's a strange heart contrast. Think about this. David grieved so deeply for his rivals, Saul and Abner, and that's in 2 Samuel, the first and third chapters. And they, they had tried to kill him. And yet here, Uriah was dead, a loyal man with a strong character. And David spent so much time repeatedly sinning and trying to cover up what he was doing that he no longer felt guilty for his actions. And so we really need to see our temptations for what they are. They're ugly traps that derail us and they mess with our consciences and they mess with our ability to know what's right and wrong. We got to run. You know, and, and the idea that David didn't feel guilty for his actions. You know, you know why he didn't feel guilty? Because he didn't let himself feel guilty. Because he had to do so much work to cover over what he had done, he buried his heart for God under the weight of his desires and his actions and his foolishness. And we can do the same thing. Make no mistake. You look at that and say, I would never do that. Really? Really? Take a look. Take a look. Don't let your temptations be something that you look at as something small. Let them be understood as what they are and the power they have to, bow, to, to bury what our top priorities in our lives really are. So, Julie, as we're going through this, you know, in, in our last uh, program talking about David, we were talking about pieces of the armor of God alongside of the story of David. Where do we go from, from here with that? 
Yeah, so we've been matching up our warrior David lessons with the battle armor that we as Christians should be wearing. And our warrior series here over these three podcasts has six David lessons, and there just happens to be six pieces of Christian armor described in the book of Ephesians. So a quick recap from last week. Our first lesson was when facing your Goliaths, know the battle is the Lord's. And this corresponded to the helmet of salvation because the helmet protects our head and our mind. And we have to have an understanding and acceptance of what the ransom of Jesus did for us. And we went into that in further detail last week. Our second lesson was choosing the right friends can save your life in more than one way. And with godly friends, we aren't in this alone. This lesson corresponded to the shield of faith. Shields are an offensive weapon used to push back an enemy, but these particular shields the Bible describes can also be lined up side by side, and it provides a portable wall of defense. So now we've got our third lesson. And remember, that was at springtime, go to war. And one sin can quickly lead to another. And so this reminds us of Ephesians 6.15, That says we should have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We should be spreading the gospel message with us wherever our steps take us, but we can't carry peace to anyone if we're lying and sinning and trying to cover it up leading a double life. And in addition, the shoes of a soldier helps them run from danger and retreat when it's necessary to regroup. So to walk in the right path We need to be where we're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. And David's army was fighting for peace, the peace of Israel. That's similar to preparing for the kingdom of peace. Our battles must be fought, but the goal is peace. Even in war, we can have peace of heart if our confidence is in God, like it was with David. So the idea of our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel means that It's about your location. You know, your feet determine your location. Be where you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do. Have those things motivate you. That's what David didn't do. And that's why he got into such great trouble in this particular instance. So let's look at the purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance with this experience, summing up this experience with Bathsheba and so forth. Stand up to temptation. Entertaining sinful thoughts easily leads to sinful actions. Harboring sinful thoughts preserves potential future sinful actions. Remember to keep your godly priorities in the front of your mind. Rest in God, not in selfishness. You know, we all have our godly priorities, but where are they in your mind? You know, do you ever like look for something in your wallet or your, your, your pocket or something and you're going through all this stuff? Where is that? Where is that? Our godly priorities can't be that thing you can't find. Can't be that little receipt that you're looking for. They've got to be the thing that's right in front all the time. That's the way our Christian lives need to work. Temptations can be far more dangerous than we'd like to think. Don't let yourself get trapped. Prepare. We have seen David's sins of passion. How did he apply his passion to care for the things of God? If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast, or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the divine presence in Israel, and as such, it was the most sacred and thanks to pop culture, the most famous thing contained in the tabernacle. Interestingly, the powerful artifact 
just vanished from Scripture. So we're now going to look at David's experience with this ark. And of course, when we talk about the ark, what are we talking about? Well, we're, we're talking about the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford, right? Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, because yeah, everybody knows what the Ark of the Covenant is because of the movie. Right. Well, that Ark happened to be the most sacred piece of furniture ever crafted. And you've got to realize how important that is. So, as we are, we're going to look at David's experience with this incredibly sacred piece of furniture. So, Jonathan, what's our theme for this segment? Know how to take care of holy things, for they are blessings from God. Know how to take care of holy things, and specifically the ark in, in this segment, because they're blessings from God. Holiness in any form is a blessing from God. So here's the thing. A simple question about how to carry the Ark of the Covenant provides a powerful lesson. And we can reference Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. But first, before we get into the experience, a little bit of history about the Ark leading up to the time of David. Oh, and you want to look at episode 1099, Should Christians Care About the Jewish Tabernacle? That was about unlocking the secrets and symbols God gave to ancient Israel, and it talks a lot about the Ark of the Covenant and the other pieces of furniture and their importance to us as Christians, surprisingly enough. <laughs> Ten zero, oh, sorry, 1099. Okay, so the Old Testament law guarded the Ark from irreverent handling, and also from being seen by the people. So this ark wasn't even supposed to be seen by the average person, and it had to be handled ex extremely in, in an extremely specific way. Only Aaron the high priest and his sons were permitted to see it or to touch it. Before being moved, they carefully covered it. It was to be hand-carried only by the Levites using two wooden staves put through rings on its sides, Numbers four fifteen through 20. And, you know, just as a side note, we're going to get into this. The Israelites are about to take this ark into battle, which did have some precedent. You know, Israel had a history of victories with this ark. In Numbers 10, when the people of Israel went into the promised land, what was carried in first? The ark. And the inhabitants of the land fled with terror. When they crossed the Jordan River, the presence of the ark caused the waters to dry up. When the children of Israel went into the land in Joshua 3, their enemies fled. Having the presence of God was the most powerful weapon in the universe. Having the ark was a representation of the presence of God. It was a physical representation of God's presence. So when we say it was the most holy piece of furniture ever, that's why. So we've got that basic context. Now we fast forward many years later when Eli... Uh, was the high priest. The Philistines were at war with the Israelites, so what's new? There seems to be always things going back and forth. Following God's will was not common at this time in Israel, so they, weren't, they were off track. And they brought the ark into battle, even though the Lord had not commanded them to do so. Now remember that point as they're carrying this ark into battle. Let's see what happens. 1 Samuel 4, 10, and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel thirty thousand foot soldiers, and the ark was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So think about this. They, they suffer a miserable defeat. The Philistines capture the ark, 
and it signaled utter defeat for Israel, on top of the fact that 30,000 men died. They, here's the problem. Here's the problem. And, and folks, listen carefully to this, because this is important context in David's dealing with this very sacred piece of furniture. They presumed the Lord wanted to do things their way. We've got the ark. We know it's holy. <laughs> we know it's been, been led into many battles. Great. Let's just do what we're supposed to do. I mean, right? And that flippant attitude toward holiness will always create trouble for us. Well, how demoralizing this was. Their most prized possession of incalculable importance was now in enemy hands. When the high priest Eli hears about this, he literally falls over and dies. And his two sons are dead. Like, this is a big deal. But wherever the ark went, the Philistine people were plagued. And again, you have to read the account because the details are like watching the most action-packed movie ever. Their final solution, these Philistines, they couldn't take it anymore, was to put it on a cart and ship it back to Israel to the town of Beth Shemesh. And you'll read about that in the account and the, the unusual way that this was accomplished. So again, go back to First and Second Samuel. Um, so the Jewish people in this town of Beth Shemesh, they see the ark coming on this cart and they rejoice. Can you imagine the Philistines are bringing it back to us. But the problem was, not only was it not covered, but only priests were allowed to look at it. So 70 men that looked upon it died as a result. And I just want to make a note that some older translations say 50,070 died. But we'll put more detail in the CQ Rewind show notes uh, to show a little bit that it really means only 70 died. But still, it's 70 people. And you're Secret Rewind show notes, of course, are we'll go ahead and we put down every scripture that we talk about. And you can easily get that at ChristianQuestions.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and you get all of the notes from tonight and, and all of our podcasts. So you, you see that there's a rejoicing that it's coming back. Okay, so you, you're seeing that, okay, the, the things happened and it was bad, but hey, look, look what's coming. But there's still there's still trouble. Here's the thing that we have to understand about this. Don't treat what is holy as though it's common. And if we understand the gravity of a statement like that, we can begin to keep things in perspective. This was a lesson that Israel was about to learn. 1 Samuel 6, 19-21. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who was able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? In other words... Who's going to take this ark for us? Yeah, because because it's there's trouble. Okay, it's it's like what do we do now? Yeah, nobody wants this ark yeah. because no one knew how it was supposed to be used. Right. They just knew it was super powerful, and people died around it, but they didn't know why. So in First Samuel seven one to two, the ark was brought into the house of Abinadab, whose son Eliezer took care of it for decades. The thing about this, though, the home was isolated, and it's set on a hill far away. And I think they did that on purpose. They wanted this thing really away from them. So it's aloof. It's distant from the people. It's gathering dust. It's not being used in the way it was intended. And Israel mourns during this time because it feels to them like the Lord abandoned them. So they're kind of stuck between the rock and the hard place. You know, you want the ark but there's death around it, seemingly, because you're not doing the right things. And so you move it away, and now you feel like God has abandoned you. So you've got you've to get, get yourself in the right place to receive the presence of God. So really what this is saying, don't ignore what is holy. Don't put it so far away that it can't be part of you, as though it doesn't matter. 
because it does. And folks, how often in our Christian lives do we sometimes ignore that which is holy because we'd rather be doing something else or we're preoccupied with something else or, or our life is taking us down this, oh, I'm just too busy to think that which is holy needs to be referenced. Our theme for this segment, know how to take care of holy things for they are blessings from God. So Jonathan, our purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance lesson for, for this. All holy and sacred blessings from God deserve appropriate respect and honor. Do not be alienated from God. Never set him on a shelf in a far-off place, aloof and distant from our lives. His presence with us is a blessing to us. You know, but his presence with you will not be a blessing unless you are in recognition of his presence. And that means having his presence tangible, not hidden away, tangible in your life. So, back to King David and this ark, because it's, they're having a dilemma in Israel. King David wants to bring the ark to the center of the city and to bring the people of Israel back to a hearty and reverent worship of God, and that's what it says in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. So, here's what he does. He gathers 30,000 of his best men, and there was a grand procession, and they're celebrating with pipers and drummers and singers, and, and David calls for the priests and the Levites. And remember, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, okay? Um, and, and including the children of Aaron. So everybody shows up. This isn't a party. This is a celebration of holiness returning. That's what he wants it to be. This is something that he is so excited about because it's God's presence coming back, and you make it so that everybody in Israel knows unequivocally God's presence is coming back to be with us. He, David wanted to celebrate the return of God's presence. There was great joy in the celebration as they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. However, no one studied how to properly move the ark. Uzzah and Ohio, two sons of Abinadab, drove it out on a new cart just like the Philistines. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Okay, they're excited. They drive it out on a cart just like a, the a Philistines. A new cart. They got a new cart. Okay, that's right. And you figure, well, it deserves only the very best. So let's do the very best. Let's build a new cart for this. Let's get only the best, spare no expense, and put this cart out there for, to, to bring the ark in. Rick, the other day you mentioned when the Philistines put the ark on the cart, it was respectful, but it was not holy. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, the, first of all, the Philistines were like, we need to get this thing out of here because wherever it goes, we have trouble. So they don't want to be careless. They're respectful because it's bringing them trouble, and okay, it's, it has to do with the God of Israel. Send it back there. Get it out of our hair. That's respectful. Israel is called upon to be reverent. Philistines were not, okay? And there's a big difference. It was they needed to have sacredness before them, okay? And that's the difference. The new cart, great idea, completely wrong, okay? Here's the problem transporting the ark on a cart was specifically, specifically, and I just want to make a point, 
It was specifically against God's command. It was to be carried, that's what it says in Exodus 25, and only by Levites, says that in Numbers, this was a good thing that they were doing, they were doing right idea, right, 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 right thought, but they did it the wrong way. The Philistines improperly handled it by transporting the ark on a cart, but they weren't God's chosen people, weren't expected to know or follow his laws. What this tells us is knowledge breeds responsibility. That's something that's really, really important. Yeah, those Philistines, they respected its power, but they didn't know what it was. They just knew it wasn't for them. So they were not held to the same responsibility that the Israelites did because the Israelites were told exactly how you are to handle this holy thing. Knowledge breeds responsibility. And so their right idea, right excitement, but not done the right way. Our, our purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance lesson, Jonathan. A desire to honor God is not an excuse for a lack of appropriate care in doing so. It's great to have the desire, but it's never an excuse for a lack of appropriate care and appropriate reverence. We have to keep those things first in our minds always. Sometimes you just get the feeling that things are going to go badly. God wants us to do things right. Having a deep desire to serve and honor God is good, but it's not enough. What else do we need? Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There's several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com. True devotion to God is far more than just a feeling. It must be based on deliberately applying whatever knowledge of God we have to our actions. David was about to be taught this in a very sad but very dramatic way. And again, knowledge breeds responsibility. Don't ever forget that in spiritual matters. Jonathan, what's our theme for this segment? Know how to avoid carelessness when seeking to honor God's blessings. You know, we want to honor God, and we've talked about being careless. Well, the next logical thing is to know how to avoid being careless. Uzzah and Ahio lived with the ark most of their lives. Okay, maybe they were too casual with it because they lived with it so long. The oxen stumbled. Here's what happened. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah put his hand out on the ark to steady it. Okay, the knee-jerk reaction. Oh, got to steady it. What happens? He's immediately struck dead. They were not to touch this holy thing. By penalty of death. Again, we, go, we, we reference that. Let's go read it. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch them, the holy objects, and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Boy, and you know, some might think all Uzzah did was touch a piece of furniture. And look what happened, though, when all Eve did was eat a piece of fruit. Yeah. You know, so reducing it to its lowest common denominator misses the whole point of obedience. Reducing it to its lowest common denominator is taking a nap when you're supposed to be 
in battle. That's face it. That's what we have to watch out for. So let's go into this this piece with us a little bit more. Well, we found some Bible commentary by a modern commentarist. Is that a word? Uh, David Guzik. Yeah, and he said this. He said Uzzah's error was more than just a reflex action or an instinct. God struck Uzzah because his action was based upon a critical error in thinking. And we've got a couple points that he said. Yeah, Uzzah erred in thinking. It didn't matter who carried the ark. And Uzzah erred in thinking that it didn't matter how the ark was carried. And Uzzah erred in thinking he knew all about the ark because it was in his father's house for so long. And Uzzah erred in thinking that God couldn't take care of that ark himself. And Uzzah erred in thinking that the ground it would have fallen on was less holy than his own hand. So really the sin here is Uzzah saw no difference between the ark and any other valuable article. That was his error. You know, and when you think about it, all of those different aspects, the who, the how, he knew, God couldn't do it himself, the ground being less, less holy. I mean, all of these things come into play, and you realize that appropriate reverence for God is just as important and even more so than a desire to have reverence for God. So don't have one without the other. Now, here's what happened. Uzzah drops dead, and, and this is pretty dramatic. Here's what... Here's what happens. David gets angry with God. He's confused, and he needs to figure out how to appropriately bring the ark into the city. He took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, a Levite family, and the Lord blessed Obed's house, and the ark stayed there for three months. Treating the ark, which represented God's presence, as holy meant blessings followed. And that's what happened to the household of Obed-Edom. They were blessed. Treating that ark carelessly was disastrous. That's the lesson here that is being put right in front of King David's face. Knowledge breeds responsibility. Carelessness usually comes from complacency. God requires reverence and anything less is disobedience. Well, remember that, you know, David threw the big party for the entire land. They were ready. They were going, here comes God. And suddenly, you know, the ark does it again. Yeah. It kills something. It ruined David's party. And he's angry with the Lord. Oh my goodness, how dare he? But look at what David did. He's going to recover. Okay. He's not saying, well, that's it. Bring the ark back far on the hill away from us. I'm, I'm done with this thing. I can't figure it out. He's like, let's temporarily take it to a house of a Levite. Okay. He's at least got that part right because that's who's supposed to handle the ark. Let's get it into the house of the Levite and let's step back. Let's reread, rethink, refigure out what it is that we need to do to get this thing into the city. And that's where I think David's heart, it shows that he's good. He could recover from some mortifyingly embarrassing thing like that. You know, I have a nice quote from William Cullen Bryant. He was a poet and a longtime editor of the New York Evening Post back in the 1800s. He said this, the sacredness of the Bible awes me. And I approach it with the same sort of reverential feeling that an ancient Hebrew might be supposed to feel who is about to touch the Ark of God with unhallowed hands. And that reminds me of what just happened. But if we've got time, I have a personal story for you. Go ahead. Okay, my grandfather was a minister. And I remember going to his house and he had this big desk where he researched and wrote all of his sermons. And I, as a little girl, and then as a bigger girl and a teenager would, and an adult would sit in a chair in front of him on the other side of the desk. 
And there was this prime little piece of real estate on the desk. It was to my left and there was his Bible. And inevitably, I don't know why, I would place whatever I was showing him, my schoolwork or a book or whatever, right on top of the Bible. He would stop, hand it back to me and firmly say, nothing goes on the Bible. And I don't know what it was about that magnetic area, but I would do it again and again. (laughs) And every time he would firmly say, nothing goes on the Bible. And you know, it's funny. He never said, I've told you a million times, don't do that. Nope. Just nothing goes on the Bible. And at least 25 times over the years, I finally learned what? Nothing goes on the Bible? That's right. Okay. Nothing goes on the Bible. And now I have my own desk I study at. To my left is my Bible. And nothing goes on the Bible because it's the living, breathing word of God that I owe my life to. It's not something that gets lost in a pile because this is sacred. And I think about how many Christians never had the benefit of a written Bible and how many people have been murdered just for trying to read it. We are one of the relatively few people in all of human history that can pick it up whenever we want. It's very sobering. So nothing goes on the Bible because this is my way of saying to God, this is sacred and I will keep your word sacred. Now, I don't know what to do because sometimes when I'm studying, I use multiple translations and I don't know what happens when I've got two Bibles and no room on my desk. I don't know if the Bible can go on the Bible. We never got to that lesson. So I just sometimes just put one in my lap and one on the desk because I don't want to put them on top. I don't know. But that's that's my story of keeping things holy. The theme for this segment, know how to avoid carelessness when seeking to honor God's blessings. When we have God with us. We have to respect that with everything that we possibly can. It's a wonderful story and a wonderful picture of the sacredness of the Word of God. So, let's get back to David. Despite his hurt over the death of Uzzah and his embarrassment with all of these things that he prepared going wrong, David focused on what? Doing better. He carefully studied the proper procedures before moving the ark uh, to a tent in Jerusalem, and this brought the worship of God back to Israel due to David's example and his expectations. And David regrouped, and he didn't give up. He consistently went back to God and wanted to serve him, even though at times he needed to be reminded this was a man after God's own heart. You know, it, it really was, and it shows This is a smaller example that most of us don't even know about, and it shows the heart of David. So David brought the ark to the city properly. Um, It was covered and carried on the shoulders of Levites with poles. Does that sound familiar? As Moses commanded, and it was put where it belonged in the tent that David had erected for it. So David comes through with appropriateness in his Reverence. First Chronicles chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 3, and then verse 13. Oh, okay. Sorry. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God rode out against us because we did not consult with him about the proper order. So David sees what went wrong, studies what went wrong, 
and then does what's right. This is very, very important. You know, we, we, we've got to look at David's, you know, we look at all of the, the, the difficulties and the trials and the temptations and the sins, and, but you've got to look at the heart that drives him to do what's right. He could have just left that ark with Obed. It was safe, okay? It was okay. Because the embarrassment in front of all the people uh, because of, of Uzzah's mistake. But the bottom line is David's meek and godly heart desired to get things right in order to have God's presence with them. What's the important thing? God's presence. What was the ark? It was God's presence. And now the people would celebrate even more than before. And we read this in 1 Chronicles 13 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. So let's pause on the story about David and, and the ark and because we see how he's handling what is holy in a reverent way. So for Christians, here and now. What's holy? What do we need to handle, and how do we do it with appropriate reverence? Jonathan, what's holy? Well, first of all, God's name is holy. Mentioning the name of God should always be done in the most respectful way. Matthew 6, 9, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We should avoid saying, Oh my God, or OMG. You know, that's not respectful. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, another one, uh, another name that I think we should be keeping holy is the name of Jesus. And it makes me think of Hebrews 7.26, where it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And Jesus is another name that people take in vain, and they just throw it around like it's garbage. It's horrifying. Also, we are holy through Jesus, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And holy means physically pure and morally blameless. We should do the most holy thing. And, you know, in thinking about this, our temple is holy, and so we have to think about what goes into our temple and what goes out from our temple. And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not, speaking to the Christian, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And Ephesians 2.21, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. All of our fellow Christians, we are part of that holy temple. So it got me thinking, What's going into our temple? Are we, do we have alcohol going into our temple? Are we vaping? Is pornography going into our temple? Is something that affects me severely sugar? <laughs> An excess of sugar, fat, poor nutrition? How are we treating our temples? This is the vessel that we have to serve the Lord. And we need to devote a reasonable amount of time to keeping it healthy and not mistreating it. It's kind of like taking your car in when it needs service. I personally have an issue with, like I said, I, I love sugar too much. So I found this obscure proverb that I never saw before that I have to read. Proverbs 25, 16. Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. <laughs> so that's making me pause every time I look at that cookie dough. And because honey is sweet. Eat what is sufficient. So let's do what is sufficient just for today. You know, and, and the idea of 
you know, for a lot of us, we say, okay, yeah, I get, I, I've got to, got to be, you know, reserved in how much sugar I eat. But let's think about the bigger, more difficult things in life that we come across and where we need to maintain our holiness. And you know, I we we actually we we got a a um, a, a very serious uh, email from from a listener talking about some serious challenges that this Christian man had. And one of the things that we responded back with was the idea of, okay, look, you're, you're dealing with hard, hard trials that are very difficult for you. Let's take, let's look at your life as a, as, as a chapter book. What's happened in the past are chapters that are already done. Today is a new chapter. And today is the chapter, let's call it just for today. Just for today, Lord, give me the strength. Help me to find a way to cope with this particular trial, that particular temptation, these particular desires, just for today. And when tomorrow comes, you start a new chapter and say, Dear Lord, just for today. And you think, well, you know, but you're not getting anywhere. Oh, yes, you are. You are daily becoming more victorious is in managing this holy temple that God has given you. So, so Julie, we've talked about what goes into our temple. What about what comes out from our temple? What comes out from our lips? Well, I wanted to give another reading assignment. Let's read um, on your own Hebrews 13, 15. And Proverbs 12, 22, but I can't resist just saying Psalm 141, 3, because this says it all. Here's what I want. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. So what is coming out of my mouth? Is holy or is it not, in my personal goal, not showing gratitude to the Lord for all that he has done for me? You know, and you got to wonder if something unholy is coming out of our mouth, where did it come from? You know, you've heard the phrase garbage in, garbage out. Well, we've got to be careful managing with reverence our physical being as holy. It has to be managed the way David managed the ark. So, Julie, what about a lesson from the armor of God? Well, so what David taught us is, remember, know how to take care of holy things for they are blessings from God. And I think Ephesians 6.14 really was the Christian battle armor that matches up with this. And that describes the belt of truth. So the belt of truth that the Christian puts on, it holds the sword of the spirit and holds up our other pieces of armor. And if we don't understand truth, if we don't understand we will fall prey to the lies of the devil. And if our belt is on crooked, we're going to have difficulty getting to our sword of the spirit. And so it's just really important that we have this belt of truth tied tightly. Well, it's interesting. The belt neither protects nor attacks. It simply holds everything else in place. Having proper reverence for God when he deems holy and has exact instructions is what holds everything in our life together. Reverence holds your life in place. It keeps your life in order. That's what David learned in dealing with this sacred ark. Jonathan, our purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance lesson for this portion. Carelessness and complacency are easy, but they are not godly. A flippant attitude of, this is good enough, will never draw us to God. In its place, God simply wants our best efforts. You know, the old good enough, it's going to have to be good enough. Really? Are you the one who decides what's going to have to be good enough? Or is God the one who decides? Let's not be flippant. Let's be serious. Let's look at these things in the way we're supposed to. Let's learn the lesson that David did. Backtrack, learn, and reapply. To appropriately reverence God is to walk a demanding path. It's not for the faint of heart, but it's worth it. 
David's heart for God is obvious. What will he do when God rejects his desire to honor God further? What's up, everybody? It's your CQ voiceover guy, reminding you we also want to talk to you before and after the podcast. Send us a message at ChristianQuestions.com for any and all feedback, or message us on our social media channels. Have a topic idea or just questions about what we're talking about? Reach out at ChristianQuestions.com. We've seen how David's personal passions destroyed life and how his godly passions preserved it. Now that the ark is back in the city and now that God is present with Israel again, David's passion for God deepens. His goal? To have Israel honor and reverence God as completely as possible. Well, Rick, what about God rejected David? You know, that, that sounds harsh. Yeah, it does. It does. We'll get to it. <laughs> It does. It does sound harsh. Do you want to see what you've learned from today's podcast? We are now creating Bible study questions for every new episode released. You can find these at ChristianQuestions.com on the individual podcast pages or from our homepage. Just click on the tab that says Bible study to see the whole library of what is available. And, you know, back to our story, David was distraught about the beautiful home that he lived in. But he said, look, this ark, this amazing presence of God only had a tent. And so he wants to build the Lord a house. But God said no, but did allow him to make preparations for the temple. And there's a beautiful lesson in this little fact for us. Yeah, you know, and this is a little fact that most of us don't know anything about. And we've got to just pause and consider what we're learning here. So what's the theme for this segment, Jonathan? Appreciate God's blessing by using all of what is available to you. You know, we talked about our why, and we talked about, you know, priorities and all of these things, but this is now suggesting use all that's available to you, and that is how you can truly appreciate God's blessings. You know, and here's the thing. If you're not allowed to build a temple, what do you do? You provide the plans and the materials for it. Focus on what God is granting you, and accept when the answer is no. And I've got another reading assignment for everyone. Man, you're relentless on those. <laughs> well, there's so much detail in here, and it's we can't put everything into this podcast, but you've got to go and study for yourself, and it's a beautiful lesson. First Chronicles 17 and First Chronicles 22. Read the whole chapters, and it'll fill in all the detail from what we're about to talk about. So, you know, Jonathan, you said, you know, it sounds harsh that God rejected David. Well, yes. God saying no— was actually a redirection for David to perform a different aspect of service. The Lord clearly spoke to David through the prophet Nathan. We remember that. We don't have that privilege, and we must try to discern God's will for us to understand if the answer is no or if it's something else. See, no doesn't mean necessarily end of statement, you know, end of subject. It can mean pay attention. There may be other opportunity that you're being directed to, and that's the lesson that we're seeing from David here. God's love for David. You know, we talk about David as a man after God's own heart, but let's look at it, just flip it for a moment. God's love for David was shown in disallowing some things. And you think, whoa, what? Yeah, watch. Watch how this unfolds. In disallowing some things and blessing others. First Chronicles 17, verses 10 to 13. 
Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. You know, he's talking about building this lineage, building this incredible line. And who comes from the line of David? Jesus himself. There's great power and privilege in what God gives him. And now he, God describes somewhat of how this is going to come to be. This is verses 11 through 13 of First Chronicles 17. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers that will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will no, not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. So God is listing out blessings and opportunity for David. And he's talking about his descendants. David is overwhelmed by this promise. And, you know, Julie's why uh, is, is, is to have gratitude. Well, listen to this gratitude response that David gives uh, to the pouring out of God's blessing. And remember, this is in light of saying, no, you can't build the temple. Listen to this pouring out of his gratitude. First Chronicles 17, uh, 16 through 18. This is in the New Living Translation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? And now, O God, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting destiny. You speak as though I were someone very great, O Lord God. And what more can I say to you about the way you have honored me? You know what your servant is really like. You look at the depth of honesty and sincerity and overwhelming gratitude that David is saying, God, why are you doing this for me? You know what I'm really like. You're treating me like I'm somebody great. You know me. Remember me? Remember me, the guy who, with all of those sins? Remember me? What is this? This is humility and this is reverence. And this is David honoring the most important thing in his life, his God, his Lord, and his master. What a powerful story. It continues. First Chronicles uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps, and more bronze that can be weighed. And did you notice this little detail here? We've come full circle. We now have enough iron from the Philistines. You know, we started out last week's podcast with King Saul when David was a very young man. And King Saul had a demoralized army um, back when David was slaying Goliath. Back in 1 Samuel 13, 19 to 21, the Philistines wouldn't even let the Israelites sharpen their own farm implements, let alone make weapons. So under David... Israel prospered militarily, and this house of David, this dynasty, would now stand forever. Continuing in verse 4, And timbers of cedar logs beyond number. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. 
So David made ample preparations before his death. So David's objective is now, if I can't build the temple, I am going to prepare for the temple. And, you know, you, we know that David is a man of great passion. And you see the greatest passion of David, I think, unfold here. A lot of us think, well, you know, it took a lot to fight Goliath. Yes, it did. It took a lot to do all of those things and, and, and subdue all the other nations. Yes, it did. It took a lot to have the humility with the sins. Yes, it did. But all of those pale in comparison to what's about to happen here. David dedicates himself to a work that he would not even see started. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. You know, now understand, bloodshed is what was expected of a king in those days because it was, there's wars all the time. So this wasn't a criticism from God, but it was an assessment of where David was and what God wanted to have seen in relation to his holy temple. So now the church is built by Christ, the true church. Okay, we're not a building, but the, the church, the people are built by Christ. The Prince of Peace. We preach the gospel of peace. And think about that as we read these next few verses uh, regarding Solomon. Behold, a son will be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. See, David was a man of war, First Chronicles 28.3. Solomon was a man of rest, not nap, but rest, resting in the victories that David had provided so he could live his life without the threat of the surrounding nations. God named Solomon and promised peace in the land under his reign so that Solomon, that man of peace, could build this wonderful temple. And it, it just gives you a sense of, the, of the, the, the way that God overruled that David would clear the way, set everything up, and Solomon could then do the building. So, Jonathan, our purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance lesson so far. There may be someone more suited for a particular job. We can still receive blessings from a supporting role or even a role of simple prayer for those who are doing that job. Okay, the job may be, boy, I wanted this job, but maybe it's not the one for me. What if it's not? What do I do? Do I do everything possible to help the one who gets the job because I think that job is so important? Hope so, because then we would be a David. That's what we want to be. So here's what happened. David gathers the materials. He pays for many of them and established their national pieces we talked about with the surrounding nations. He found and paid for the site through his punishment for numbering the people. He commanded all the leaders to help Solomon. He hired the foreign workmen. He made the detailed plans for each room of the temple and the pieces of the furniture for each room of the temple. He planned the administration and the worship services and the rotation schedules for the musicians. He put everything in place for the temple even though he didn't build it. And with all that, 
it was still called Solomon's Temple. <laughs> and David was okay with that. Yeah. And you know, I wonder how many of David's psalms he put into those rotation schedules for the musicians. Were they playing his psalms? And, you know, this... Um, these this apparently the schedules for the musicians and all this administration was still going on at the time the temple was destroyed and so it um it it lasted it was long lasting so what david did lasted and it was so important to him so beautiful it is it is and it is appropriate that's still called solomon's temple because the man of peace built it and god blessed the efforts of david through his son. So, Julie, our final Armor of God lesson for today. Well, remember, David's part is, if you're not allowed to build a temple, provide the plans and the materials for it. Focus on what the Lord is granting you and accept when the answer is no. And so we thought that coordinated well with the Christian's Armor of God in Ephesians six seventeen. It tells us about the sword of the Spirit. Now, the sword gives us a great power to yield, and we can properly use God's word, that's the Bible, with his spirit. This helps us deal with the answers that are no. But the interesting thing about this piece of armor is we can put it down. So we can put the sword down. It's not strapped to us. Remember, it's held by that belt of truth. We can get upset that we aren't able or aren't allowed to do something we want, even if it's something positive in his service. You know, so it's again, it's our decision to pick up or or put it down. And David's attitude of making the preparations and accepting the no answer when it came to the actual construction fits nicely with the picture of the sword. It does, because he did exactly what he could do in the way he could do it. He was outfitted to prepare, and so he did with his entire whole heart. What an incredible, incredible example. Jonathan, our final purpose, pitfalls, and perseverance lesson from David. If you're not allowed to build a temple, provide the plans and materials for it. By focusing on what you can do, that no answer becomes a godly opportunity. A godly, godly opportunity. Think about the power of the godly opportunity. So we are left with one last piece of armor, and that is called the breastplate of righteousness. And the word righteousness is where Abigail shines the brightest. She brought a righteous solution to David, and he listened. But this important story is a lesson for our next podcast. All right, so that's where we're going. So we're going to backtrack a little bit in David's life to get to that particular lesson. So listen, we started this podcast with David's deep and dark mistakes and bad judgments. And we ended with the greatest visionary architecture a man could ever have. We can see incredible differences from the beginning to the end here. Which one of those defines David? He gets too easily defined by his mistakes because that's what people always remember. No one knows about the part about how he poured his soul into that temple. It was a home for the ark. It was to be a home for the presence of God. And that is all David cared about. That was a man after God's own heart. Folks, grow up and be a David. Be that man or woman after God's own heart. Get your priorities set and see the things that are most important. Think about it. 
Listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, Julie, already whet your appetite. What does it mean to be a warrior for truth? What does it mean to be a warrior for truth? Talk to you next week. <laughs>